Well, good morning and a happy Father's Day. We are so glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. Uh, a big thank you to all the dads and father figures in our lives uh, for, for investing in us, for shaping us, for molding us. We hope that you feel honored this day. Uh, thank you for those of us who have gathered here to worship in this room as well as those who are joining us online. Uh, we're excited to be in Luke chapter 15 today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, there was a teacher who asked her class, what's the difference between Mother's Day and Father's Day? One kid said, well, they're essentially the same, only on Father's Day you spend a lot less than you do on Mother's Day. One little eight-year-old boy said, my daddy can do anything. He can climb the highest mountains, swim the deepest ocean. He can fly the fastest airplane. He can do anything. But most of the time, he just takes out the trash. Somebody once said that a father is a person who carries pictures where his money used to be. Our generations have changed a lot in recent years. It was common in my grandparents' generation where dads were somewhat distant from their kids. You think about how most dads weren't even in the hospital room when their kids were born. Oftentimes, they didn't change diapers and do those sorts of things. And, and thankfully, for the better, a lot of those things have changed over the years. That cultural trend of dads getting more involved started in the 1960s. One baseball player named Jimmy Pearsall, who played for the Red Sox, Mets, and the Angels, he wrote a little piece called A Dad's Guide to Changing Diapers. Now, in those days, diapers weren't what they are today. They were simply squares of cotton cloth. And so here's a professional baseball player giving dads instructions on how to change diapers. He says, first, spread the diaper in the position of a diamond when you're at bat. Then fold second base down to home and set the baby on the pitcher's mound. Put first base and third base together. Bring up home plate and pin the three together. Of course, in case of rain, you've got to call the game and start all over again. <laughs> I love that. Well, Luke 15 is where I've asked you to turn this morning. Here's where we have the best known and the best loved of all of Jesus' parables. You probably know it as the parable of the prodigal son. Charles Dickens says that it's the best, the finest short story ever written. There are three main characters. You have the younger son, who's usually referred to as the prodigal. You have an older son, who has a major role to play in the story. And then you have the father. Now, there's a couple of things that people normally get wrong about this story. First, they think the main character is the runaway son. But the main character is the father. He's mentioned no less than 12 times in a span of 20 verses. Second, we think that the word prodigal means runaway. But the word prodigal in English means reckless or wasteful. It means to spend until you have nothing left. The word prodigal only appears one time in the story as a reference to the son blowing all of his money. And I'm going to show that when you see the bigger point in the story, the word prodigal probably better applies to the father than the son because the story is about the recklessness of God's love. And so as I share this story, I'm going to highlight the love of God being spoken about through this parable. Uh, so let's begin together. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. 
So he wants his dad's money, but he no longer wants him. I can't imagine a more painful thing for a dad. His son is saying, my preference would be for you just to die so I can have your money. But since that isn't happening, I just want to take the stuff and go away. I can't imagine anything more painful for me than for my kids to one day say to me, we have no desire to have a relationship with you. We don't want you to be around. We don't want our kids to be around you. Just give us your money and get out of our lives. Nothing would cause me more pain. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a picture of what sin is like. Something that all of us have participated in at some level. When our lives are characterized by sin, we don't really want God in our lives. We don't want his control. We don't want his rules. We don't value or need his love. And what I want you to do is I want you to understand sin as the big I problem. Middle letter of the word. I want to be in charge. I want to be in control. I want to be the point. You know, people often think of sin as these heinous moral acts, and it includes that. But the essence of sin is that I want to be my own Lord. And that can't happen when God's around. So I'll just ignore God. For all practical purposes, God is dead to me. Now we come to the first major surprise in the story. The text says, so he divided his property between them. The book of Leviticus says that you could have a rebellious son like that executed. New Testament scholar Kenneth Bailey says, first century Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy rejected the family, the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out, so-and-so is cut off from his people. This ceremony was called the kazaza, literally the cutting off. And it was performed, and after it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with the wayward son. Which leads us to our first point. God loves you even when you've rejected him and broke his heart. Before you repented, before you even wanted to come back to him, God set his love on you. He never stops loving you. Verse 13, not long after that, the young son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and squandered his wealth in wild, or there's the word prodigal, living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Point number two, God loves you as you wander in the darkness. This guy's free life, it started out great. He went to the far country, away from the father, away from the rules, and he got everything that money could buy. But then the winds changed. The money was gone. Then the friends were gone. There was loneliness, despair, begging. The journey ends with him taking the lowest job in Israel, feeding pigs, which were considered unclean animals. He's so hungry that he craves the filthy slop that they eat, which gives you a picture of the trajectory of sin. It usually starts off great. Do you know that Scripture says that there is pleasure in sin? You know, it irritates me when pastors imply that there's not. I can remember when I was a kid, pastors saying, sin ain't fun, 
And I'm thinking, well, then you ain't doing it right. Because there's a second part to that verse. The Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season. It begins fun, but it ends in darkness, right? And some of you are there right now. Maybe for you it's the darkness and pain of sexual sin. Someone you did something with. Maybe somebody who's no longer around even after they promised you that they would. Maybe you're in a pigsty of broken relationships or you've lost your family. You're up to your eyeballs in debt. Or maybe it's the darkness of a secret sin that you've never confessed, but it's eating you alive inside. That path you chose promised you so much, but it hasn't led to where it promised. Actress Angelina Jolie says she remembers one of the most upsetting times in her life was when she had finally achieved success. She had the financial stability. She was in love. She said, I have everything they say you're supposed to have to be happy, but I'm not really happy. Eminem said, you have to be careful what you wish for. I always wish for this, but it has become more of a nightmare than a dream. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. You're out in the distant country. And what you need to know is God loves you during all of this. You see, you you should think of the story as if you're watching a split screen. On one side, you have the son in his reckless living. On the other is the never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up love of the father. When you read the story, you, you tend to forget about him. But you can't because throughout the whole journey, he's watching, he's waiting, he's never ceasing to love his son. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, when he finally woke up, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here am I starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Here's point number four. God loves you as he brings you back. Now let me point out something here that you may not have noticed. It looks like the son is the one who's deciding to come back. But I want to remind you, this is the third story in a row that Jesus tells about finding something that was lost. The first story was about a lost coin. A woman had ten coins and she lost one somewhere in her house. She didn't rejoice that there were still nine. No, she searched, she scoured, she lifted up the cushion, she looked all over the house, she swept until she found the one lost coin. And then he tells the story about a lost sheep. A guy had a hundred sheep, one of them was lost. He didn't rejoice that he had 99, he went in pursuit to find the one lost sheep. And with each passing story, the item, the thing that was lost increased in value. Now, you may not really resonate with either of those, a lost coin or a lost sheep. My guess is you know what it's like to lose a $20 bill, right? You misplace it, you look throughout your wallet, you search all the pockets of all your pants, and, you know, $20 won't break you, but but you still want to find it. 
But the climax of Jesus' trilogy here is the last one. It's the story of the lost son. If you're anxious to find a lost coin or a lost sheep, you are desperate to find a lost son. A few years ago, we took a family trip to SeaWorld in San Antonio, and uh, our youngest son, Jude, was about 18 months at the time. And, and we learned that when you add a third child to the equation, it just throws off the equilibrium, right? Like, with two, mom has one, dad has one, but when you have the third one in there, you're outnumbered, right? You're outmanned, and so there, there's always one just kind of wandering. And we were at the water park that day, and there was this, like, two-story, like, treehouse with water features, and there were fountains and a splash pad thing, and it was a hot day, it was packed. And so at some point in, in the day, uh, we're, we look at each other, and I've got Caleb, and uh, Tara has Ellie. We can't find Jude. And so her eyes get really big, and she's like, you stay with, with the older two. I'm going to go try to find Jude. And so she's calling out his name. She comes back, and, and you can see that look on her face, like that panic begins to set in, like, I, I don't know where he's at. And I said, okay, you stay with the kids. I'm going to go look for him. I'm, I'm, I'm shouting his name. I'm asking people, hey, have you seen this boy? He's about this big. This is what he looks like, looking all over. And as the minutes pass, that, that panic begins to set in. We're, we're in. We, we've got to find him. And at this point, we're, we're frantic. We're looking everywhere to find him. And after several, several minutes, he was kind of crowded in the corner of this place on the playground. And, and we found him. And there was such joy and such relief that we had finally found our son. And this is the kind of desperation that God feels for the one who's lost. And he seeks. And you don't see it illustrated as much in this story, but just like the other ones, the father is the one who is seeking. The apostle John explains that we come to the father as he draws us. And he will arrange the circumstances of your life to draw you to himself. And he's working through all kinds of things in your life. He's working through the pain. It could be a broken marriage or a failed career. Something that, that you thought was secure in your life, but, it, but it's falling apart. It could be the scare of death. Some of you have had a health scare recently. And what you need to see is that is God drawing you to himself. Now, I'm no prophet, but I know that for many of you, that's exactly what he's been doing, even leading up to this service today. I want you to know it's no accident that you're here today. You, you may have felt like it was some random invitation from a friend. Or you saw somebody wearing a four t-shirt or you saw a, a four magnet on the back of somebody's car and you're like, what is that? I've seen that all over the place and, and it led you here today and it's no accident. God is drawing you to himself. Verse 20 says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. Now, grown men in those days did not run. Even in our day, grown men usually don't run unless it's for a sport. Like, if you see a grown man running through the mall, it's either because he's committed a crime or somebody has committed a crime against him, right? Men in, men in those days, men of stature, they wore robes. Robes aren't good for running. You don't see anybody enter a marathon wearing a full ankle-length robe. So what the, what the father would have to do is he would have to lift up 
lift up that robe to expose his knees in order to run, and that was considered shameful in, in the ancient Near East. But there comes a time when, when emotion so dominates your heart that, that you forget all social customs. You just throw it out the window. I was thinking this week of game four of the 1998 Eastern Conference Finals. Reggie Miller hit a game-winning shot against Michael Jordan, and after making the shot, he, he jumped up, he ran to the other end of the court, and he just started jumping in circles, jumping and like spinning in circles, and it looked crazy, and honestly, it was kind of ridiculous. But do you think he cared? Absolutely not. He just hit the game-winning shot. And I think about how the father, as he's running, there were a lot of people that said, hey, 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 sir, you're, you're, you're shaming yourself, you're shaming yourself. And he's saying, I don't care. My son has returned. The text says that he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Here's point number four. God loves you as he wraps you in his arms. Have you ever had this moment when suddenly in your spirit, God's voice whispers to you the tenderness of his love, telling you that even though you've run away, he's never given up. There's a story about a father and his teenage son in Madrid, Spain. Their relationship had become somewhat strained, and so the teenage son ran away from home. And the father spends a journey in search of, of his rebellious son. After a long time without any success, he has one last desperate attempt to find his son, and so the father puts an ad in the local newspaper. And the ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up. They were all seeking forgiveness, all seeking the love of their father. And if you stop and you listen, God is telling you through this story, all is forgiven. I love you. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, by the way, you notice that the son never got through his prepared speech? He planned to tell his dad how, how he had this plan to become a servant and to, to work and to pay off all his debt, but, but his dad cuts him off and he says to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine is dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Here's point number five. God loves you as he baptizes you with grace and makes all things new. The father gives the son three gifts. He gives him a robe. The best robe would have belonged to the father. So he's being clothed in the garments of his father. He gives him a ring, which was a symbol of authority. He gives him sandals, which were a sign of wealth. See, servants didn't wear shoes in the house. Only sons did. The son had requested the status of a servant, but he's been denied that. Rather, he's been restored as a son. You know, our natural reaction when we have sinned against God is to try and work it off. But God will have none of it. You can't know God that way. You have to know God on the basis of grace. 
Now, you may be asking, where's the shame from what the son did? It's gone. The only one who experiences any shame in the story is the father as he runs for the son. Okay, well, where's the punishment? There's not a drop of it. Okay, well, well, who pays for the reckless living? Not the son. The father absorbs it. Instead of shame and beating and humiliation, there are robes and honors and parties. The sweetest, richest word in all of Christianity, the one people find hardest to believe, is grace. I want you to understand grace as an acrostic. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. I want to explain to you how this whole story is really about Jesus' death and resurrection. The cross of Christ was Jesus running after us, taking upon himself our shame. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He was whipped with a cat of nine tails. Nails were driven into his hands and his feet. Crucifixion was so painful that that men would often vomit and and, and urinate and, and weep and wail. The Romans would would crucify their their, their prisoners in a public space. They would hang them naked. This was Jesus bearing your sin and shame. Do you understand what the cross is? It's Jesus taking your place for your rebellion and your wayward living. You see, the cross for many people in our culture is just a decoration. It's a symbol of faith. It's something that they hang around their neck. But the cross is everything. It's God bringing you back. The cross is not a decoration, it's a declaration. It's a declaration that though you and I deserve condemnation, Jesus took it all in our place. And he offers us the restored intimacy of sonship if we choose to receive it. The resurrection was Jesus making all things new. It's where Jesus took the garments of our sin and put them away in the grave and he clothed us in the robe of his righteousness. It's where he gave us the ring of a new life, the authority to overcome sin and corruption, the authority and the ability to put your family back together, to escape the curse over your life, to make all things new. He put on our feet the sandals of our privileged position with the Father so that we can boldly come into his presence as sons. If the cross and resurrection aren't true, then this is just a a quaint, nice story with no real meaning. But if they are true, then it means that God is the true prodigal. He's the one who spent until he had nothing left. He is the one who ran to you. He's the one who gave it all up for you, and he now offers to clothe you in power and grace. If the cross and resurrection actually happened, it means that none of us are beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no sin too wicked, no country too distant, no recklessness too severe, no shame too great, no corruption too advanced. There's no pigsty too filthy. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. If the cross and resurrection are true, your history does not have to determine your identity or your destiny. Your future isn't defined by your past mistakes, but by the promises of God. A God who makes all things new, a God who clothes you in power. 
If the cross and resurrection are true, there's nothing you could do that would make God love you more. There's nothing you've done that can make him love you any less. It is a gift that you simply receive. It's grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. You get the position of the son because Jesus, God's perfect son, paid the price for your rebellion. But the story isn't over. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brothers of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here's point number six. God loves you when you're too proud to receive his grace. The older brother on the surface, he looks like the opposite of the younger son. He's good, he's moral, he's upright. But there's a subtle detail. Do you notice it? He's outside the house. Jesus has a very specific person in mind as he tells this part of the story. It's the religious person. The person who's lived a good life and thinks that because of that, God owes them. But, but this is a person who's never experienced God's grace and has no true relationship with him. You see, this brother is not like his father at all. He hates his brother. The older brother may be near the house of the father, but he doesn't have the heart of the father. Did you ever notice that religious people can be some of the most unloving people on all the planet? They're self-righteous. Some of them are haters. There's some of you, you've been victims of that. And that's because religion cleans you up on the outside without changing the inside. When our oldest son was probably three or four, he managed to find some blue paint in the house. He was in a different room, and so he'd got some on his arms, and he'd got some on his chest, and he had got some on the floor. Well, after a while, he kind of thought that he should probably start to clean it up, and so as he tried to, to rub the paint off, he, he only smeared it more, causing a much bigger mess and making it worse. After a while, we, we found out where he was, and, and it was just all over the place, and we asked him what happened, and he said, I, I tried to clean myself up. And that's religion. It usually just leaves you in a worse state. It's cleaning up the exterior without changing the heart. Isaiah 54 verse 6 says that all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. See, see religion doesn't really change the heart. It, it only leads to pride and it, and it leads to more filthiness. And what God wants is he wants to change the heart. And that can't happen by you simply resolving to do better. It's when you experience the grace of God and he makes you more like him. It is the grace of God that creates the new heart. 
It is the grace of God that makes you like the Father. But here's the good news. God loves you during that time when you're too proud to receive his grace. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing this. We believe that, that God loves the wayward sinner, but he also loves the lost religious person. According to this story, Jesus says there are two people who miss the gospel, the wayward and the self-righteous, which leads me to our last point. You can, choose to stay out, you can choose to stay outside God's love forever. You notice how this story never resolves? It ends abruptly in verse 32. Does the older son receive the father's invitation and come back in? Or does he stay outside? It doesn't say because the story itself is an invitation. Will you receive God's offer of forgiveness? God won't force it on you. You have to choose to receive it. So so here's my question. Have you had the very simple experience of receiving Christ into your life? Some of you are saying, but but, but I'm a religious person. I live an upright moral life. I'm not asking that. I'm asking, is Christ the Lord and Savior of your life? Others of you are saying, but here's the deal. I know too many Christian hypocrites. I know too many people who say that they they follow Jesus. They say they believe believe in Jesus, but, but I look at their life and the two don't mesh. And you know what? That upsets me too. What I want you to know is is Jesus didn't say follow my people. Jesus said follow me. The invitation that that Jesus offers you is to follow him. Follow Jesus. And so I want you to have the opportunity to receive Christ if you never have. And I'm going to extend that opportunity to you in just a moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be baptized as a sign of your faith in Christ if you've never done that. And I want to explain a little bit about baptism. There's nothing cleansing in the water itself. I'm like 99% sure that we use well water here at Bachelor Creek, so odds are you may be dirtier when you come out than when you come in. I I don't know. It's not the water. Some of you are saying, but, but... But I'm already serious about my faith. Why would I need to go through that? Why why, why would I need to be baptized? What's the big deal about it? Because it's in baptism that you identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in baptism that, that you identify yourself with Jesus. It's the occasion that marks the beginning of a relationship with God. Jesus tells us to be baptized. And I can hear it. Some of you got a lot of excuses popping through your head. But I can also promise you this. Any excuse you have, we've got an answer for some of you may be thinking, but, but I didn't bring any clothes. We got t-shirts from size small to double XL. We got shorts with drawstrings. We got hair dryers. We give that to you after you get out of the baptistry for liability reasons. We got hair gel so you can redo your hair. We got combs, we got brushes, deodorant. And if you need something more than that, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're kind of high maintenance, but Jesus forgives that too. Some of you may be saying, but, but I was baptized when I was a baby. I want you to notice that Scripture always presents baptism as a confession of your faith. Every single baptism that we see in the New Testament, every single one happened to an adult. It was a profession of their faith. 
And so I want to ask you, if you were baptized as a baby, whose profession of faith was that? It was theirs. You need to make it your own. So I'm praying that, that, that some of you will, will come forward and you'll talk with one of our ministers, with, with one of our elders, and that you would trust in Christ today and you would display that faith through baptism. Would you join me in prayer? God, you are a perfect heavenly father that pursues us. Even when we've run away, you still love us. You never stop loving us. You never stop pursuing us. And God, I thank you that for every single one of us in here who trust Christ, that the moment we turned around, you were right there waiting for us with your arms open and you wrapped us in your arms of love. What a father, what a savior, what a love. God, I thank you for your grace today. A grace that's new, a grace that never ends. A grace that cannot be earned, a grace that is only received. God, I pray that every person who's here today, every person who's, who's joining us online, every person who, who hears this message would know that none of us are ever too far gone. That you always welcome us into your arms. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here who's never trusted in Christ for salvation, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would accept Jesus Christ as both their Lord and their Savior. They would say, Jesus, you're Lord, meaning you're in control of my life. And you're also my Savior. I'm trusting in you to forgive me of all my sins. God, I pray that, that you would give us the faith, that you could have, give us the courage to surrender our lives to you, knowing that you are God who loves. You're a God who leaves the 99, that you pursue us what love that is. We thank you. We praise you for that love in Jesus' name. Amen.